Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Cheers. We're back with an all new episode of Keep It. <laughs> Should have seen that coming. <laughs> Guys, I was at the royal wedding this weekend. Oh I'm British. Gosh. All your Juilliard draining coming, coming <laughs> through. I, I, I just can't turn it off. Before we get into the royal wedding, Kara, you were in Vogue. I was. I was on Vogue.com. Fancy pasta bitch. It was an amazing layout. Thank you. Yes, I have. Guys, I have a pasta blog. I think I maybe have mentioned it before. Called Fancy Pasta Bitch, where I make fresh pasta and and I write dumb blog posts about it. And Vogue like wrote a little thing and they sent a photographer and I made the pasta and it was a whole thing. It was very nice. Also, I kind of forgot that pasta, making pasta looks like that, where you right. put it through a machine. It, it was sort of like an episode of Mr. Rogers where he takes us to like the cool <laughs> pasta lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it was, uh, it's a whole thing. And I simply adore Vogue. You know, oh, um, I love to have tea with Edward. He runs Vogue over there in the UK. Um, we just we just have a grand time. You veered and... into Andre Leontelli. <laughs> <laughs> Truly thought it was a great piece, Kara. Thank you. Just kudos. Thank you. And Cheerio. <laughs> you and I did something less glamorous this weekend, and arguably problematic. <laughs> We went to see Taylor Swift. Oh, by the way, separately. We both, <laughs> separately. We, we, people just asked us to go with them, and we did. Can I so say did, any, did either of you pay American dollars no. for these tickets? No. And okay. I, I want to say they were in the 400 range or something on oh, the floor. Ooh. I was on the floor, like, feet from the stage. Yeah, likewise. And the person I went with was bequeathed these tickets. Okay. For free. Right. Okay. It remains shocking how she insists on dancing. She thinks she is one of these choreo girls coming out here thinking she is doing Beyonce pop and locks. She she is, looks like Julia she, Stiles she, in Save the Last Dance, one hundred percent. She's not even Jessica but Simpson. Julia Stiles no. was right. good in Save the Last Dance. Right. Like, right. And also, by the way, no shade. What, she's a great actress. I love Julia Stiles. By the way, you want to know something about me? My hometown is the white hometown featured at the beginning Stop. of that movie. <laughs> Literally, they, they scouted for a white town and picked mine. Anyway, um, no, I think we underestimate that she that Taylor has gone through what I will call the full furtado, just fully doing hip hop moves now. <laughs> no one is like Ed Sheeran, please. Vogue through the next three m numbers you perform. <laughs> By the way, that reminds me. This is the thing that's most like Trump about her. She is obsessed with her own statistics. The previous <laughs> night was the 40th. I don't know how many people she told you was there that night, but she would not stop mentioning the 60,000 people in the audience. Right. She was like, when I first performed in Southern California, 450 people came to see me. And tonight, it's 60,000. She kept repeating it. And then when she put up an Instagram later, because Shawn Mendes joined her uh, on stage, and you guys got Troy Sivan. Right, and Selena Gomez. Yes, but when she uploaded the video of her and Shawn, she said, thank you, Shawn, for coming out and joining me and my 60,000 fans. I'm like, bitch, we get it, you okay. number muncher. Nate Silver over here, what is she doing? <laughs> I, also, meanwhile, Shawn Mendes is just 19 and needs to do his home, like actual homework. Anyway. My last word on it is, it was slightly enjoyable, because I do enjoy a lot of her songs, and I was drunk and high as hell. But there's something so interesting about how this is her bad girl era, 
And in between songs, she completely falls out of character. Oh, yeah. She slips back into that Taylor where it's like she's playing cabaret in high school or something. You know? It's like between each song, it doesn't flow. She doesn't stay in character. My problem is I don't care for this album that much. I like her other albums better. So it was was a B-plus experience for me. Well, that's enough about Taylor Swift. Coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by Vina Sood, creator of AMC's The Killing and Netflix's Seven Seconds. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now... Is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. (laughs) Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey. 
Hello, hello, hello. We are back with Keep It, talking about the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle of America. Y- your pronunciation of Markle was so sad just now. <laughs> it was like Markle. <laughs> All of our UK fans have turned this they're, podcast off. They're fleeing, they're fleeing. <laughs> I'll stick to Catherine Dinner. Anyway, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle got married this weekend. Uh, the event was attended by every British celebrity that you could possibly want. Um, except Rita Ora. I'm sure she tried to snag an invite. And uh, American celebrities like Oprah. And the cast of Suits. <laughs> uh, did we enjoy the wedding? You know, I'm so mad because I didn't, you know, like last week, I was kind of like, oh, I don't really care about this that much. And then I, I want to say I did not get up at 4 a.m. and watch that. I woke up at a reasonable time and caught it on, you know, the delay. But I just got sucked in mostly just because it was a wedding, like a nice it, wedding. It's hard to deny the fun yeah, of it. And yeah, and like I'm so mad because I don't even like I don't want a wedding myself. But like even when I go to weddings, you just like get sucked into it. You're like the patriarchy has won. I want to be a princess. I want a fucking prince. I see it. I want that veil. And they just looked they looked so happy that like there was nothing to, to hate on. Well, by the way. I mean, just a week after the Met Gala, which we watched for basically the same reason, like the thrill of the British wedding is just seeing everybody process in. It's like if the Met Gala starred only Bryce Dallas Howard in The Help. Just like eight, 80 different versions of that coming through, like fascinators and like pink pastels. The, I, was gonna, I was thinking about- None of us have seen The Help, Louis. <laughs> well, we don't support that movie. <laughs> Let's strike one today. All right. And they do sissy spacek dirty in that movie, let me just say, by the way. Here's the best part of the wedding. Obviously, the queen is a fan of pastels. Who do pastels look best on? That would be black people. So that really worked out for them. <laughs> Her Oprah. mom looks so cute. Yes. Oh my God, with the nose ring. That was so and cute. The, yeah, like Doreen St. Felix wrote an amazing piece for The New Yorker because everything Doreen writes is fucking amazing. She wrote about specifically Megan's mom and like really that there was this black woman you know with locks and her nose ring like sitting there watching her daughter and just like that for me was probably the moment that really got me in the wedding was probably seeing her mom. Her piece was lovely. I loved Megan's mom. I loved Oprah's look. Mm -hmm. It was beautiful. She just looks great in pink. Also did you hear that she like the dress she was supposed to wear like didn't work out and so she just like texted Stella McCartney and was like, yo, can you overnight me a whole new gown? Sometimes you just hear stories about rich people where you're like, that is a different echelon of just wealth. Where like, how did they just have that dress tailored? Who, what, like Cinderella birds were like making that dress the night before (laughs) and they somehow overnighted it to her and she just put it on and it was perfect. I'm like, that is... It was just so Oprah. I mean, the real royalty showed up as, you know, real royalty, the cast of Suits, Gina Torres looking amazing, (laughs) which was my favorite part of the wedding. Something that a friend of mine told me who was writing about the wedding, which is that, so I'm one of the however many people who actually watch Suits, like in real time. Yeah, I I really like Suits, but um, apparently it's really popular internationally. So she was saying that British people think that Meghan Markle is like a huge celebrity, like she's like Kerry Washington. Oh. They think she married like the. He, they think Harry married like the biracial Carrie Washington of the United States, and they don't realize that she's not that famous over here. Which I find very funny that to them this was like 
you know, some like meeting of like American celebrity and our prince. <laughs> and it's just like most people in the United States know Meghan because she just married Prince Harry, not from Spain. Right, I love the concept of American celebrities who have that international appeal just because their shows yeah. play overseas. Like mostly it's probably suits and a show like Grey's Anatomy and stuff because soap operas and like yeah. telenovelas and things play really well overseas. I'm so say, those when, people seem so famous. One of my thrills was looking through Meghan Markle's filmography and realizing she really was just an actress hacking it out. Like, well, there's two episodes <laughs> of Without a Trace or whatever. And now you're the queen of England, sort of. The wedding was also celebrated for its blackness or quote unquote <laughs> wokeness. I think it's a bit much calling a wedding with the backdrop of colonialism right. woke. Also, these are still the first like eight black people ever to be there. <laughs> I mean, there there were first. I get there's no way there have been that many black people in that church ever. I mean, I did. Like, there were some beautiful black moments. Yes, and like the the preacher from Chicago, like he was wonderful. At first, I couldn't recall if the wedding full wedding was going to be broadcast. Yeah. I thought that like they were just going to show the entrances, and knowing that he was delivering that speech to the world right. was fantastic. He was amazing. Also, you know, the Queen is a big fan of Billy Graham, so you know she was probably feeling that shit. She was like, yes, this is what I've been looking for. The choir obviously was amazing. They also sang like this little light of mine, which is like And stand by stand, me. Yeah. I, I was that was my favorite part because I like getting rid of things like hymns that don't matter and replacing them with like rock music that still plays in a church. I think that was really cool. Yeah, and so I I mean I it was definitely, you know, the blackest royal wedding ever. If but we had to um, rank them. I yes. think I mean obviously the the wokeness <laughs> thing of it was ridiculous. The second and blackest I, was Margaret. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just like this need, like not everything has to be like a radical moment. You know what I mean? It's just like, yes, it was nice that we got like that there was some diversity that a group of people who have been living in the UK for centuries finally got to see a little bit of themselves in one of these old historical sort of events. Um, it, you know, it was a nice moment that Megan got to get some of her culture in there and all of that. But like, it doesn't mean that it's like a radically woke you know, royal wedding. Sometimes you can just take things at face value and say, hey, that was really nice that they added all of those things. I think a lot of people really appreciate that moment, but like, let's not kid ourselves. Here. I'm imagining a future Crown-esque show starring <laughs> Meghan Markle where it follows the same plot as The Crown. It's every week Meghan tries to do something black and buck with tradition <laughs> and the episode always ends with her going with tradition <laughs> because I, that's how each episode of the craft right yes, right yeah <laughs> I, I still... almost did something defiant <laughs> all right well we'll be back <laughs> to discuss janet jackson and the rest of the billboard music awards oh, God. my accent will not be there The 2018 Billboard Music Awards were this weekend, and they celebrated some of the biggest names in music. I mean, not really, but they did <laughs> give Janet Jackson the Icon Award. She was the first black woman to receive it. She only started in the industry like 35 years ago. Thanks for getting around to this. 
<laughs> people have realized she's an icon now that she's back on the scene. Yeah, I guess. She is one of those weird people who disappears for years at a time just anyway. Like between Janet and Velvet Rope, she was gone for five years. And then, you know, the past 10 years, where has she been besides Qatar or where she ever? She's, she's, been, she's usually, been having a baby at age 50, which yeah. is, I assume, a lot of effort. Right. Out here having um, Octavia Butler babies uh, using sci-fi or whatever <laughs> means to be pregnant at her age. Or White people call that Annie Leibovitz babies. Mm, yes. Or she's off having secret marriage. But that too. Yeah. I would disappear too if I knew that no matter what, when I came back, everyone would pay attention to me. True. She's just like, I just have to show up again and I will be as famous as I was when I left. Of course, I'm going to dip out and marry a billionaire and do whatever the hell I've been doing. And she never loses her ability to do militaristic dance moves. Still, still chopping it up on stage. Her performance, let's just dive right into that. It was. Fantastic. Yes, my only problem was it was kind of short for it was a medley, too short. but like she when really she was killed. Done. It. Yeah. I was like, mm, can we do two more minutes? My favorite was seeing all of the people in the audience. Like you see, like Sierra, who is a very good dancer and clearly like grew up on Janet Jackson, and that was someone who was a big influence for her. And seeing them just like geek out over seeing her and all of these people who have just sort of been jacking. Her, her her moves and her style and all of that um, for so long, like really get into it, I thought was very fun. Tyra Banks knowing she all the words to Nasty was fantastic. Andy Cohen trying to stay on beat. I mean, it right. was... <laughs> Tyra, who of course debuted in the black or white video. Yeah. So, yeah. Andy was exhausting. <laughs> he was doing Exhausting. Lot. He was doing the most the entire show. Mugging for the camera, sitting behind Taylor Swift and Sean Mendes, just <laughs> also- like... Looking around, and he came in this um, pink suit jacket and a black t-shirt, and he just completely shedded the suit jacket by the end of it, and was he just was... like dancing and like. I didn't even really watch the full show, but every time they cut to Twenty One Savage, like he looked like he had just had an entire pan of edibles. I was like, <laughs> he does not look like he knows where he is or what is happening. He could not have looked more confused, and I, to the point where I was like, stop cutting to this kid. He's not giving you anything, and they cut to him so many times. Yeah, I feel like I got a lot of Chrissy Metz too. They like just picked rain, really random. Weird. Strange people. people. Did yeah. we need to see Chrissy Metz dancing during Janet's if breakdown? I want to see the choreography. Yeah, which that was always, by the way tight. God, the choreography that was always so pisses me off at award shows too, where like you're seeing some hot choreo and then they cut to someone in the audience dancing to it. I don't need to see that. You no, know, the Billboard Awards for me. The, the way that they who, decide how these awards are handed out, it, they shouldn't even call it an award show. It should no. just be called the Billboard Showcase. The person and we, who yeah, wins yes, is the person who has the, the most streams, yes, the most radio should, play. It's it should, just public information. It should just be <laughs> the Billboard Showcase, and we will give you an award. You, you have to perform... We give you the award. We all know who wins it. And we stop pretending like there's any... Like, why would you even show up? If I know I did not have the number one streaming yeah. pop song, I wouldn't go to the goddamn award show. No, but I, that's what confused me about Taylor Swift being there originally was... Wait, if she's not even performing, why would she be there? Oh, she won two awards and does her own statistics, as we discussed earlier. So, of yes. course, she knows she won. I feel like the difference in the billboard is it has more musical performances than any of the other music award shows. So at least those people show up who are, I'm performing my new hit, download it, and then they leave. Right, no, the Grammys feel indebted to like, 
less popular categories. So you'll see, you know, hit makers as well as non-hit makers. Billboard is just like, we think popularity is the best. <laughs> so you just see people who have number ones. I loved Kelly Clarkson. Oh, an unproblematic white fave. Kelly Clarkson, let me tell you too. I Another know... light-skinned white woman yes, of color. she is, she is. And let me tell you, black people love Kelly Clarkson. When Gucci Mane got married, he and his wife either walked down the aisle or when they left to a moment like this. Like, black people fucking love Kelly Clarkson. And she was up she's there. Texas. She's, she's just Texas. She's right yeah. or die. You know, she's kind of thick. Like, oh, she was just, I, her little she, medley. She has such a good voice that mm-hmm. she doesn't need a black ground when she's performing, yes. you know, not she, Nick Jonas or Justin Timberlake finding their local black choir yes. to sing behind them like and make she, them sound she's elevated. She's better than her backup singers, which yes. is rarely the case when when singers have black backup singers. You're like, all of those girls can outsing you, whoever it is. But I, I thought she did a really good job. I was just like, I'm just happy to see Kelly out here. Her medley, still I was say, pop hits. That medley, it, it, I mean, it was one of those things where it was just, if we had to hand over all of pop radio to Kelly, all of it, it would be fine. Right. Like, it so, sounds so good. Her opening the show with that medley of number one hits, I was like, mm, can she start singing some of these people's songs? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I prefer her, yeah, her take Hands on Bruno Mars. Hands yeah. Mendes. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Charlie Puth. <laughs> I want to hear How Long from Kelly. And she also opened the show with a tribute to the mass shooting at Santa Fe High School in Texas, because she's from Texas. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of conservative pushback online Obviously. Was there? Obviously. <laughs> those NRA thoughts were in a tizzy. She didn't mention gun control once. Right. And I love how it's their default to attack everyone. And I remember people just being in the comments of some of those attacks saying, you know who Kelly Clarkson is, right? Like, she's <laughs> from the South. Yeah. She is your fan's she, demographic. She, she kept it kept it purposely kind of innocuous. Yeah. She did not say gun. She said we would I want a moment of action. She didn't say like we're rounding up the guns. That's the moment of action. Though that is the one that needs to take place. Because yes. she's talked before, you know, about um gay rights, you know, and racial inequality and stuff. So when she's ready to go in about a subject, she does it. But here she was opening this award show and it's Billboard's number one. So you know that like country music fans and people are watching too. She's like, here's me giving a message to America and keeping it cute. Cute. Yeah. And Um, also it was so impressive to hear her just say that because it was almost impossible for her to get through and it was just, you know, a, a tough note on which to start a show like that which is just, you know, teen screaming. So for her to do it as well as she did I thought was very memorable. Like I'll I'll remember it uh, you know, years from now, and I can't say that about many award show intros. Oh, Kelly, she might she might be taking your seat, Lewis. Oh my God! Well, that's fine. That's no, that I'm okay with. I'll just hum behind these hazel eyes behind her. <laughs> Kelly Clarkson, please record a theme song for us. She can sing along to that to that techno beat. <laughs> when we're back, Spike Lee's movie gets a standing ovation at Cannes and a conversation with Vina Sood, creator of AMC's The Killing and Netflix's Seven Seconds. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Spike Lee is back. His new film, Black Klansman, debuted to glowing reviews from white critics at Cannes and had a 10-minute standing ovation. It's about a black detective who goes undercover in the KKK, and it won the Grand Prix Award, second only to the Palm d'Or, which Lee lost out on in 1989 for his movie Do the Right Thing. He lost to Steven Soderbergh's Sex Lies and Videotape. Nothing wrong with that movie, by the way, but Do the Right Thing probably is well, much more disgusting. Well, in retro, it's one of those things where, like, when you look back, it obviously should have been Do the yeah, Right Thing. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. just for the cultural import. Yeah, and we are also joined by Vina Sood, creator of Netflix's Seven Seconds and AMC's The Killing. Hi, Vina. Hi. Vina, how do you sort of feel, you know, sort of making art yourself, you know, where it's always sort of going to be filter not immediately maybe through the audience that you intended for yeah I mean I think and I want to touch on Spike too because Mm -hmm. I I have an interesting Spike story I feel as a creator one thing I've noticed with seven seconds that I really appreciate is uh, I can go straight to the audience mm-hmm. and hear what people are saying um, which is it feels like digital democracy because there's no gatekeepers there's no anybody standing in the way between the story and the content and the audience it was intended for so that's incredible and satisfying um, because as much as we're talking about, you know, Oscar's so white and Me Too and the non-democracy that exists in this industry, that applies not only to who's in front of the camera and who's the showrunners and the creators, et cetera, but also who's greenlighting, you know, mm-hmm. shows and who's criticizing shows, you know, and whose voices are being heard um, and what critics aren't. So that's a that's a big part of how a show actually gets out there and gets traction. Did you see a bit of a difference in, you know, Netflix where it's um, directly to the people, maybe the difference in criticism from your first show, The Killing, you know, where they're just different critics that you saw finally coming out of the woodwork? Well, I felt the difference I felt between Seven Seconds and The Killing is, again, now because of Twitter, uh, you know, that there is a there's a real person presence in mm-hmm. the world, the digital world. And it's not just, you know, one or two or three or four critics in entertainment telling people what to watch and not um, and criticizing showrunners for choices they make Mm -hmm. or not. So it's really great, again, to just go straight to the audience, almost like theater now. You know, Mm -hmm. I can get feedback directly from people who are actually watching the show. 
What, mm-hmm. What's your Spike Lee story? So the yeah. Spike Lee story is uh, when I was in film school at NYU many, many years ago. I went ago. to NYU. For, oh, you did? Uh, I got a, um, my master's in dramatic writing there. Really? Yeah. I was in the film, in the directing program. Oh, okay, just yeah. one floor down. Did you take the master's class by any chance? One of the I, masters? I didn't. Oh, I took one with um, Susan Laurie Parks. What? <sighs> Wow. Top Dog Underdog? That's amazing. They put that on at Iowa for us. (laughs) (laughs) She's incredible. She's amazing. In the directing program, Spike was teaching the year that I was there. Mm. And he had just directed uh, the Son of Sam film. And so we got to see Rushes and we got to see an early cut uh, of his film. And it's just to see a filmmaker of color is was was such a gift in the late 90s and spike was such a gift i think to all of us you know to see what was possible um because when i first went to college you know and took my first film class i was the only brown face in the room i was definitely the only woman and we were watching brian de palma's whatever film where some woman's getting killed by a rotorooter and it was just like every this, film of his yeah every <laughs> some woman with her dress up getting <laughs> raped killed yeah. whatever by a rotorooter and immediately the message was very clear that you do not belong here there's no place for you and you know there is absolutely no desire to see you up there unless you're getting raped killed mm-hmm. by a rotorooter and so then to have the counterpoint of spike being loud and proud and putting his films out there and being so prolific um, was great. And also opinionated and critical. That's always what yeah. I've loved about and him. Political. He's very honest about movies, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. So everybody, what's your relationship with Spike Lee movies? I have to tell you, it's not that it's a blind spot for me, but I am a little undereducated. I mean, I saw it do the right thing in high school in, as part of like a cinema studies unit where finally the first black characters we got to ever were do the right thing. I still, I mean, it's a great movie. You didn't want Sons of the South? <laughs> no, no. Zippity-doo-dah. <laughs> we just inherently know from birth. I don't have to be taught it. I rented Crooklyn as a 10-year-old because I loved the VHS box. That's how movies worked in the 90s. And I saw Chirac. But otherwise, I'm a little woefully undereducated. Chirac, that would not have been a great intro. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm slightly torn because I saw the trailer for Black Klansman and it looked amazing. And I was like, I'm so it's excited to see this. It looks amazing. One thing that I do think is interesting, which is we're kind of at this birth of a nation issue again, where at Cannes, you know, the, sh- the movie got like amazing reviews they got ten a 10 minute standing ovation. ovation but I'm like how many black people were there watching this movie and so Miriam Bale wrote for W Magazine I think she was one of I think she said two black critics that she saw there or like a very very small number uh, yeah, black female critics, black female critics yeah and so it is one of those things where Birth of a Nation turned out to be a terrible movie, but no black people had seen it because there aren't that many black people at right. these screenings. Right, and Miriam liked it. Well, no, Report- Miriam didn't. Sorry, Miriam didn't like it, and this reporter from IndieWire, she well, did she, like she it. she did not like it. What she said was that there were some issues with it, and she said she felt that it got a little, um, I mean, I really like Spike Lee. He can be a touch heavy-handed with things, and that was sort of what she said. And so I do think it's interesting that the black people that were there didn't necessarily have this like glowing review of the film and it speaks to a larger kind of issue 
around diversity in film and all of that, obviously. Also, in a generic way, also, the way people react at film festivals, because the creators are there and the actors are there. And I think there's an enthusiasm about the moment they're all in it together. And so you can't really trust the objectivity from a critical standpoint. We've talked a lot about that. I miss the time when black artists or artists of color could be critical of one another's work for so long. You can't be critical of things because there's only four of us. And if we are, Mm -hmm. we might not get to make anything the next year. But I think now with things being more democratized, you know, with the internet, with access to fans and more critics, I think it's opening up the avenue for criticism and making work better. I think also sometimes when you have films that are meant to say something, so with not all of his films are, they do say something, but I think there is sort of an interesting difference between like this is, you know, a film like Birth of a Nation where you're putting a stamp and saying this is going to be about something. And what's the movie with Denzel Washington with the bank robber and Clive Owen, that Spike Lee movie? It was so good. Inside Man. Inside Man, which is amazing, where it was a diverse film and all of that, but it was just that. And so I'm wondering for you, Vina, like how... Often do you think consciously, like, I'm, I want this to be, I want to say something versus, like, just you making anything says yeah. something. I mean, I think, I think, you know, all of us as artists, you know, and writers, we want to be artists and writers and speak to what is in our soul and to a beautiful way the light hits the trees I saw one day and I want to write about it, you know. And, and then I inhabit this body, you know, and this truth and this existence and I want to write about that. But it doesn't have to be every single thing is a statement about, you know, where I exist in the world. Um, as it should be, right. you know? That's part of the freedom of that we're striving for is that we just get to talk about human existence. Mm-hmm. And you started yeah. your career as a journalist. I did. Um, so how has that impacted the stories that you tell? As a journalist, I mean, it was it was a great gift because I just had to do lots of research, you know, and talk to people. And in talking to people, I discovered the world has many more interesting stories than I could make up and way more interesting twists and turns. And so there are so many gems out there. So that's what we do with every writer's room that I'm in or when I'm doing research for a project. Just before I write one word or make one judgment or decision, just talk to the real people in the world. One of the things I, I read, um, I, I don't remember which show but where the breakdown of your writer's room was I think it was like two black people and three Latinos and and one of the things that I find so frustrating when people talk about like diversity and behind the camera and all of that is like they treat it like where are we going to find these people and so much of making changes is just doing like you just hire them that's all it is and when I'm wondering just like it's it feels so easy to just hire them. And I'm wondering if you find that there was sort of a larger hill, like getting them in the room and convincing the studio to these are the writers we want, or if it really was just like finding these people and putting them in the room. Or even getting the agents to send you yeah. people of color mm, instead yeah. of, yeah. you know, standard white people. Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly, you know, John and Ava have done it, you know, a- across the board in terms of their writers and directors. And um, it, it is, it's easy in the sense that you are the showrunner, so you can make the decision, um, but you do have to push. So there is, because we do not have this tradition in our industry, which oddly, for some reason, always feels way behind the culture curve and it shouldn't be it's almost like we live in magaland like sometimes i'm like what the hell yeah it's very weird when the maga people 
attack Hollywood for being so liberal and progressive and forward, and it's not really. Yeah, mechanically we're getting there, but it's not like we're overrun with diversity. Just because yeah. three people give a speech at an award show right. doesn't mean that's what's happening behind the scenes. Right. I mean, Color of Change did that incredible report mm -hmm. with UCLA where they said, you know, I think 90% of writers' rooms are still run by men, 80% or 90% or some ridiculous number still majority white. And so this is not the America we live in. You know, this is like some fantasy of some hillbilly out there who voted for Trump. You know? it's, not, it's not America. It's not where I live in or in any of us live. Mm -hmm. And so there is an odd push. There is a strenuous amount of conviction you've got to have to get the writer's room that you want. Women and men and people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Vina, I just have a question. What, like, pop culture just has interested you recently? Like, what movies and TV are you watching and thinking, like, hell yes. Thank you for this. <laughs> Always Orange is the New Black. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I just started, we were just talking earlier about Wild Wild Country, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because how did I miss this crazy Indian woman in the 90s <laughs> who is, some, is a sociopath granted, but also fierce as shit, and a feminist icon, perhaps, you know, who doesn't give a shit and just kind of said what she thought, including tough titties, you know, <laughs> national broadcast. She's like, so how quotable. did we miss this, like, incredibly interesting... Cult leaders really do get the job done. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought of starting one myself. <laughs> uh, Lewis and I were actually randomly at a party recently that was... Wild, wild Country theme. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it was loosely adhered to. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> Netflix is everywhere. What made you want to bring a story like Seven Seconds to viewers on Netflix then? I had just finished The Killing and mm -hmm. devoted five years of intensely focused time and energy on that show. And I was really looking forward to doing another show. I mean, because it's such a deep dive. You, you just like take a pound of flesh and like give it up for years when you do a show. So I knew I, the next thing I did, I really wanted it to be powerful and meaningful and just, you know, bring me deep into this world. And I was turning on the television and watching on a nightly basis yet another black man or child being killed. And so, uh, it was around the time Ferguson had just happened. Um, Freddie Gray had just been killed in Baltimore. Um, and so, you know, I called up my executive and I said, this is a story we could tell, um, but we can't pull any punches. It can't be let's feel good about America because we should not feel good about the American justice system right now. And um, I, I'd like to tell this story, you know, in cahoots with many other people. But um, that's how it started. Mm -hmm. And what I found really interesting about the series, too, is that it didn't go that route of immediately, you know, a police officer has shot an unarmed black person, uh, which is often, you know, hard to watch in um, recreations of it. You know, it was a hit and run, you know, and then the white police officers cover up a crime and then it sort of spirals out from there. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciated the sort of mystery element and, you know, the way you spun that story out. I was really hoping by not doing a shooting, well, there are two things, you know, not kind of going to a place that what, what I really wanted to accomplish with Brenton Butler lying in a ditch for 12 hours was the spectacle of a child lying on the ground dying. Because I felt like when I was watching the news reports, 
over and over what I kept hearing, um, and including one of our writers who a child she knew had was shot by the cops and left to die in Los Angeles in, in East LA. Over and over and over, a, a body being left out there, you know, whether, you know, you know, Michael Brown, you know, just lying there in full view of the world, in full view of his family, his friends, you know, neighbors. And, and why is that like happening? Like, and would that happen if that, you know, 12 year old was white? Like, yeah. you know, would that happen? And, and, and there seems to be a very clear answer to that. And um, so I wanted to like make that a recurring kind of motive, uh, motif to question why that's happening, and then also to have the image of the blood and the snow and the Statue of Liberty be kind of the most powerful image of the show. I feel like that's the goal in that you get to tell these stories that maybe we've only seen them told a certain type of way, and when you do have the narrative, when they are even willing to make a show about black people being shot or about slavery, it has to look a certain type of way. And when you have people of color actually telling these stories, you get to be, and you know, it may sound a little goat, but you get to be a little creative with how you're telling these stories and like bring an artistic element to it as opposed to like, we're telling the story just because we have to tell it because it's never been told before. And I feel like mm. sometimes there's this desperation of, it has to get up there because we've never seen it before. And I feel like even, I think Spike Lee does a really good job of that where, you know, how However you feel about his films, he does, he he tells the stories that he wants to tell, but he also tells them creatively. And I feel like that is the goal for, you know, for all of us. Same. Yeah. You know, it didn't, it doesn't always work for me. Like, I, I didn't really respond to Chirac, mostly from, like, growing up in that area, too. And I just thought, you know, it was interesting how he mixed the Lizestrada with that story though you know i like that he's always doing something like that and i love how black Klansman is you know almost sort of taking that dave chappelle joke of the, the blind, blind yeah the blind yeah. Uh, person um but having you know like a black person infiltrating it it also reminds me of oh do you remember the opening of bad boys too where they infiltrate no. the KKK. It's 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 ridiculous. Do I remember the opening of Bad Boys 2? I don't. Okay, well, someone was asleep in class. Uh, but it's nice to see something going from that direction as opposed to, um, like, I love the actor Garrett Hedlund, but he's in this upcoming movie called Burden, which is about a... KKK. He's like a white boy who was adopted by the KKK, and then it's about him breaking free from it when he falls in love with like a black woman. And I'm like, I don't need to see that. <laughs> I do have to say, by the way, about this movie, Adam Driver's in it, and he's somebody that like critics were obsessed with telling us was going to be provocative and interesting for years to come. And I held out for no reason. He was in that movie Patterson last year. He was amazing in that. Like, became one of my favorite actors. About the bear? Pat no, that would be Paddington. Mm. All right, so I, you do your shtick at me. That's fine. Yes. No, this was the Jim Jarmusch movie. Anyway, he was wonderful in that. Seven Seconds is now done on Netflix, though. Are there any plans to maybe take it elsewhere, or are you just moving on now, I guess? Um, I feel like there's still so much to, 
to be told mm-hmm. in this story. Um, and I love the characters and the worlds. Um, I love KJ. I love Fish. There's still so much to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, if not on Netflix, maybe somewhere else. Okay. But it is. A, it was. A, it was intended as a limited series. I was going to say you can submit it to the Emmys as a limited series, which is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you win. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Fargo. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you. today, Vina. Thank you so much. And when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the week. It is Keep It. Lewis, I'm going to let you go first since yours is apparently personal. It is. I am proud to announce this is the first time I will be telling Ira to keep it. I will also be telling a bunch of other people to keep it. Guys, there's a movie called Book Club out this weekend. You may have seen it. It is Chardonnay (laughs) and not much else other than four of my favorite actresses, truly. It's uh, Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Jane. Mary Steenburgen and uh, Candace Bergen. Anyway, they're women in their 60s and 70s, and they're, you know, dealing with love in their lives. It's not a Nancy Myers movie. It's almost a Nancy Myers movie. I thought this movie was effing cute, and everybody gives a great performance. Candy Bergen, obviously, is about to be in the Murphy Brown reboot, and I am ready for her based on how she is so droll and cool and I thought very like sexualized and real in this movie. Ira did not think so. But it has... I didn't say she wasn't sexualized and real. I just said I didn't like the movie. Okay, well moving back to this. It got a fifty three percent on Metacritic and it should be it should be it should almost everyone It should be a sixty eight. It won the popular vote. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. You're telling a fresh. lot of people to keep it then. That's exactly right. <laughs> Kara My keep it this week is to Twitter. I got a pop-up notification something or other the other day from Twitter and it said support... Kanye West is following you. (laughs) I would rather die. Uh, Support a culture of respect on Twitter. Did you know fewer than 1% of people on Twitter produce most of the tweets that break our rules against abuse? Please take a look at our rules to know what is and isn't allowed. Twitter, you've got to be goddamn kidding me with that bullshit. You have, like, it's just Nazi city up in there. You have the biggest bully on earth on your platform, like, is gonna get us all killed because you can't just shut down a damn account. I have had, I have gotten my account suspended for, like, making a joke to a friend about, like, I'm gonna kill him, and I got my account suspended, and people are up here threatening me, and then I get your little email that's like, they haven't broken the rules. You were out of your fucking mind. Don't talk to me about rules, about 1% breaking the rules. Twitter, get your shit together. Also, that's their triumphant... Statistic: There's like a billion people on Twitter. Like less than one percent right. of them are mean. That's, That's a, still hundreds of millions of people. people. Tons <laughs> and tons of people. Like you, we support a culture of respect. I mean, come on. Do they? Of course they don't. Like I remember that Candace Owens woman was. I tweeting, like how she thinks. Right? She would she tweeted that uh, a Twitter moment called her a far right speaker. She quote tweeted it with. I'm not a far right speaker. And Jack was up in her mentions responding, oh, Candace, I'm so sorry. And right. I see that he also follows her on right. Twitter now, too. Jack, Fuck at Jack, Twitter. at Jack, get your shit together, man. And don't be sending me this bullshit about how you support a culture of respect until you maybe get rid of all of the fucking Nazis that are on your platform. 
Nazis and people who at celebrities in your mentions oh, them when too. you're talking the about real ter- the real terrorists are those people. <laughs> right. I'm trying to make a joke about Sarah Bareilles right now. You can't actually bring if her into I this conversation. If I wanted to at them, I would have people. Don't be tagging people in my tweets. So my keep it this week is I saw this tweet about an upcoming movie and I have no idea how this movie was greenlit. Uh-huh. How it was conceived, how it was filmed, how anyone on set allowed it to be finished, and how it's being released. Johnny Depp in the movie <laughs> City of Lies sets out to solve the Tupac and Biggie murders. What? I mean, what? 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 No. No. What? If you had to put together Wait, a what? keep it Mad Lib Wait. of everything that should be kept. Hold on. Hold on a second now. Hold on. City of Lies follows a journalist played by Forrest Whitaker and a retired LAPD detective played by Johnny Depp as they try to uncover the identities of those responsible for the murders of Tupac and Biggie. Does Forrest Whitaker know he has an Oscar, sir? And Johnny Depp does not, by the way. Right, right. Forrest, you have an Oscar. You don't have to do this. Well, first of all, Johnny Depp should just be in jail, period, for that Murder on the Orient Express remake. (laughs) Done. Second of all... And the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yeah, that... And maybe his relationship with Amber Heard. (laughs) Arguably a problem also. (laughs) Or when he snuck dogs into Australia. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about that. Right, 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 right. I just remembered, I hadn't thought about this in years... We were supposed to give him an Oscar for that movie, Black Mass, and then he did not get a nomination or anything. That movie sucked. So anyway, did, you will suck again, Johnny we, Depp. Didn't we just get a movie about solving Biggie's murder? Like, didn't we? There's ju- a series, right? That a USA seri- show. Yeah, yeah, like. I don't know why white people are obsessed with solving this crime. We have all moved on. We've all moved on. The only black people who've been shot and killed, white people care about, right? are Biggie and Tupac. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> Anyway, that's our show. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.